We're going to be in Judges chapter 4, but it's going to take just a minute before we get there. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you guys for a little bit of help, a little bit of feedback here. Uh, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here, and I want you guys to tell me what the picture is whenever you see it. All right, so I heard a duck, I heard a bunny. So, show of hands, who saw a duck first, or a bird of some sort? All right, who saw a rabbit, a bunny first? All right, so it's about like 70-30, 80-20 split. Who sees both now, though? Who can can see both? So you got the, 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 the bird looking that way, you got the rabbit looking that way. Same picture, different people see different things whenever they first look at it. All right, so now we're gonna, I'm going to have another picture, and this one's going to be a little bit tougher. I want you to tell me what you see in this picture. Dra- dra- dragonfly, what else? A skeleton? Tur- okay, turtles. All right. Here, here, here's, all right, so here's the deal. This picture is of nothing. What, what this picture is is... Uh, and what you say this picture is, is more of a reflection of you than it is of the picture. It is used to draw out what is inside of you that you don't even know by psychologists and psychiatrists. That's, that's what they use the, the Rorschach test for. So whoever said skeleton, was that you, Brooke? All right. I don't know what that says about you, but, uh, but that, that's a skeleton. I've also heard a scorpion and a beetle this morning. So the turtle, turtle's a little nicer. That's a little softer. That works. Um, but that's what this, this, this picture is. It's just, it's meant to be nothing, but to draw something out from you. What this picture is says more about you than it does the, the picture. Now I show you these two pictures this morning because the text that we have in Judges chapter four kind of works like these two pictures. Two different people can see the, can, can read this text They can read the text we're going to cover this morning, and they can walk away with two entirely different assessments of what they just read. They can walk away with two entirely different applications of what they have seen. Furthermore, these uh, these assessments, whenever they come come to them, oftentimes, I I think, in my opinion, we'll see this here in just a minute, uh, have less to do with what they actually read in the text and more to do with an agenda that they bring to the text or at least the kind of preconceived ideas about what this text is supposed to teach us, right? So just like you, whether you see the bunny or the rabbit or you project something onto the inkblot test that was up there, when you project something onto that, it says more about you than it does actually about the text that is there. So my goal this morning in this text that we're going to look at is to, to strip us of that baggage and to try to take a fresh look at this text. For some of you, that will be next to impossible. For some of you, you have formed an entire idea of who you are supposed to be based on this text. In one way, well, even if you don't know it, you have, a, you have kind of formed it based on this. But my hope is that when we take this fresh look, we'll be able to kind of sort out what of these notions are accurate, and some of them are accurate that you may have brought to the text, and which ones that we need to hang on to and which ones we need to discard and get rid of altogether. Or at the very least, ask some some critical questions maybe we've not asked of this text before. The way this text gets used is fascinating to me. It's very, very interesting for me to read even the commentaries on, on different sides. Like it, it's just so obvious how some of it comes out when you read it. For the feminist, 
or what we'll call the egalitarian camp, those that believe women can and should do everything that a man can and should do. Deborah is the, is the shining light of women in leadership. This is the go-to text to shout from the rooftops about the value of women in leadership. In the other camp, the complementarian camp, the one that sees that men and women are equal in value and worth but have different roles to play and are not simply interchangeable pieces, recognizes the contribution of Deborah. But really, this text is less about leadership. And for them, the text is more about the need of Deborah because of the failure of men and the failure of masculinity. And it becomes a, a handbook, kind of in negative, of how to be a godly man, or at least how not to be an ungodly man. So I'm going to go ahead and steal my old thunder, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, or my own thunder, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of lead with the, uh, at least what one application is going to be. I think both sides probably have some things that support their case. I think both sides probably have something that they can, they can point to that we should, we should listen to a little bit. But... But the author is not writing this text in order to build up women or to condemn men, but to show us that the battle belongs to the Lord, and he'll use whomever he sees fit. And as we'll see, that includes a nobody and a woman to accomplish his purposes. So while this story is not about, and and I'll say, while this story I don't think is about masculinity and femininity, it's not about men and women, I do think it can teach us some things, and we do have some things to learn about men and women from this text. It's just not the purpose of the text. It's not the primary reason we have the text. So we're going to be in Judges 4, as I said. We're going to cover all of 4 and 5, and to be honest with you, we could probably spend two or three weeks in this text if we wanted to really tease out and draw out all the things that are in there, but if we do that, I think we kind of lose the unity of the text. So we're going to cover it all. There's a lot to look at. We're going to look at Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And honestly, this text probably warrants a little bit more than what we can do, but we'll do all that we can. So for the next like 35 minutes or so, it's all gas and no break. I hope you guys are ready. We got a lot to cover because we're going to jump in here. So chapter 4, verse 1. And just as a, in case like last week's sermon wasn't clear enough, this one's going to get dark and bloody too. Just a heads up so you know. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years." So our familiar pattern is back. Israel sins, God punishes, Israel is placed in slavery, ruled by an ungodly and oppressive king. He's cruel, and he treats them terribly. And not only is he cruel, he has a stout army to back him up, one that Israel simply cannot muster and attack on. This is not where Ehud can just come and destroy and and assassinate the king and all will be well. Even if, if something were to happen to Jabin, they still have this massive army to deal with. So it's a little bit of a, of, a, of a more dire situation than even we saw last week. These iron chariots were essentially the tanks 
of this time. These were the go-to military weapon. These heavyweight, big-time chariots were almost unstoppable to an army on foot or even an army on horseback. And they've got nine, 900 of them. So essentially, where we pick up is Israel stuck in slavery to a king that could squash them if they tried to rebel. But once again, the refrain is there. The gracious God of the Old Testament, just like the gracious God of the New Testament, steps in to deliver his people in a way that is totally undeserving based on what his people have done. He could have just left left them in service to Jabin forever, and he would have been right to do so. But instead, he raises up another judge, which is where we get our first kind of plot twist in this story. A judge is intended to save Israel, to deliver them. Previous judges have fought battles and assassinated kings. So who will this judge be, and how will they stand up and rule? So Judges chapter 4, and remember, the judge judges some, but primarily in these texts, the judge is actually the kind of deliverer, the savior of Israel. So who's this judge? Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit, uh, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So it's a girl judge. That's who we've got here, Deborah. If you don't know, that's a Shrek reference. You know, he says, oh, it's a girl dragon. Of course it is. If you don't know Shrek, then that's fine. But it's a girl judge. So if you don't know the story of Deborah, you would have had no way to see that this was coming. You would have had no way to see that this was there. This seems like a man's job, like a man should be the one to step in, to lead Israel, to deliver Israel, to sit in judgment over Israel's disputes. That's all we've seen up until this point, for a man to step into this role. But now we got Deborah, and it turns out that she is both a prophetess and a judge. And not only that, as we'll see, she's really good at it. She's really, really good at it. And actually what we're going to see is if you look at Deborah and her role as a judge, she is one of the few that's really good at it and that we really don't have much negative to say about her. All the others have problems. Ehud, not really so much other than the fact that he's a super violent guy. Maybe a problem, maybe not. But Deborah does it well, does it better than all the others. The, the woman does it better than all the men do. She's known for her wisdom and for her ability to speak on behalf of God. This is who our judge is. So surprise. Now look in verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So she calls Barak and she says, Hey, you, I need to talk to you. You need to do this. Now Barak is the commander of the armies of Israel. Okay? She says, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So has God not told you to go out and do battle with Sisera, and I will take care of things for you. I will handle them for you. So this is not, not Deborah saying, I will draw them out. This is Deborah saying, has God not told you that he would draw out their soldiers and handle this battle for you? 
So she calls out this major player in our story, Barak. He is the military leader, leader of Israel and a guy who's not had a whole lot to do in recent years because if he tried to do much of anything, he would have been squashed by Sisera and King Jabin. His army simply can't compete with the 900 iron chariots. But from Deborah's perspective, Barak simply hasn't been listening to God or hasn't been obeying God. And Deborah calls him out on it. She says, have you not heard from God that this is what you were supposed to do? We're not told how she knows this, but she is a prophetess. She knows. She says, here's what you need to do. You need to do what God has called you to do. You need to get your men together. You need to go outside and you need to, you need to go after, uh, you, you need to draw out Sisera and fight him. And Deborah just assumes that Barak has, hold, has heard this and she's not sure why he isn't doing it. So what is Barak's response whenever Deborah calls him out? Verse 8. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So here's the first of our Rorschach test pictures, this passage right here. There's two readings of this text, all right? One reading of this text is that Barak is a coward. That Barak is a coward. He won't go to war because he's terrified. And he demands that a woman go fight the battle for him because he's chicken. And this is a crisis of masculinity. If Barak would have just been a man in the first place, then they never would have needed Deborah to be, uh, to be called out and to be a judge and to be a savior. So he's trying to make Deborah go out and take the lead. And then God rebukes him for his cowardly act. This is where many will point to Barak and his failure, his lack of masculinity, and then it puts her into this place that is a shameful place for Israel where Deborah must lead. And so they say that the only way a woman should ever lead is in the absence of male leadership. And there's two problems with this understanding. One is before we learn about Barak, Deborah's already in charge. She was in charge to start with. She isn't in charge because there was no men in place. She's in charge because God raised her up and put her in that place to be in that place, in that moment for God's people. He, she was already in that place. This is not a, okay, I will lead since you have it, Barak. This is, I'm already leading, Barak, and now I'm going to call you out, you man, for not doing what you should have done. She was already leading. So that's one problem with that reading. She's in charge because that's what God has put her. And again, she's good at it. There's no indication anywhere in the text that Deborah is leading because Barak or any other man hasn't stepped up. It's not there. You can't find it. She's leading because God put her there. Second, while Barak is rebuked, it's not for a lack of faith or a failure of manhood. In fact, Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, names Barak as one of those whose faith is commendable for the way that he acts and is to be celebrated. So I'm not sure that Barak's cowardice is what's driving here. I want to be really clear about this. It may be cowardice. That may be an accurate reading. That may be actually what is happening. Barak is scared and he's not going forward. 
But if it is, it's not something we can glean from the text. The text doesn't tell us that. So it, maybe it's because he's cowardly. But I think we can make a pretty good case that Barak has lost an opportunity at glory and being celebrated as a leader because he has been passive. Now, it doesn't tell us why he's passive, but he is clearly passive. His passivity is something we cannot argue. What drives his passivity isn't all that clear. In fact, many others would argue that his passivity occurs not because he's scared or cowardly, but because he is insistent, much like they were in the time of Moses, that, they don't want to, that he doesn't want to go to battle without the one who speaks on God's behalf. Similar to how Israel didn't want to go into battle without Moses behind them and his leadership that was there. So some would argue that that what drives Barak's passivity is not cowardice, but the desire to have God be there with him on the battlefield. Both of those are pure speculation. It's just not in the text to tell us why he's passive. But what's clear is his passivity robs him of a blessing and a celebration that could have, and by all rights, should have been his. I've told you before, and we'll talk about this more here before too long, but not today. I've told you before that the first sin to be called out in the Bible is not that Adam or Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, but that Adam was foolish enough to allow his wife to eat from the fruit in the first place. When God shows up, he says, he says, what are you doing? And he, he says, you know, the, he finds them hiding and they're ashamed. And he says, you know, who told you that, that, that you were naked? Who told you that you had sinned? Who told you about this? And then God holds him in, into account whenever he pronounces the, the curse. The first thing he says is, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Now, this doesn't mean that it's inappropriate to listen to your wife. The point that is being made there is to say, you should have stepped in and said, no, this is not what we're going to do. You shouldn't have been passive, Adam. You should have engaged. God calls out Adam's passivity before he calls out either of their active sins of eating from the fruit. This is why one of our core tenets of our men's basic training that we, uh, that, we, uh, uh, that we have is that we as men are called first and foremost to engage. Passivity is a core sin of men and one we must wage war against. So my question for you right off the bat as we look at Barak here today is, men, where are you being passive today and what is driving that passivity? Where is it that you are not engaged? What is going on in your life where you should be stepping in and you should be going to war or you should be leading or you should be moving and doing things and working on things, but instead you choose to back off and say, I'm not going to get involved with that. I'm not going to do that. Maybe it's in your, in your marriage. Maybe it's in the way that you parent. Maybe it's in something you do at work. Maybe it's in just taking care of the house. Maybe it's in all kinds of different things. Where have you said, I'm checked out, that's not my response responsibility. Listen to me, we don't get to say that's not my responsibility. We don't get to say I'm passive on that issue. God has called us to be engaged. Men, often our sin is less because of our inability to win the fight that is before us, but because we won't get in the fight in the first place. Our inability to lead our families is less because of our failure in that area than it is because we refuse to engage in that task. There's almost no end to how this can apply. 
There's almost no end to where we are tempted to draw back and say, that's not my fight, that's not my battle, I don't have the energy, I don't have the time, I just don't care. Almost every sin begins with a failure to engage. A passivity that sees us miss a battle that we could have won, just like Barak. Just like Barak. He's told he's missing out on the glory that should have been his. So men, what blessing are you missing out on just because you won't engage? Because you're, it, Maybe it's because you're, uh, as some think with Barak, your, 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 your cowardice is saying, I'm afraid that I'll lose, I'm afraid I can't win. Or maybe it's because you are, you're not engaged because you're just so tentative and you can't figure out, what do I do? I, I just, I'm not sure where to jump in. The whole thing is you've got to be engaged. So I'm not sure what drives Barak. I'm not going to call him out for being less than a man. But what I am going to say is he's acting a little bit like a man. And he's passive. And letting the glory pass right by him that should be his. So Deborah goes with Barak because he knows that she has messages from God. And he doesn't want to miss out as he is about to go to battle. Deborah agrees they head out to the battlefield. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all the chariots. Remember, he's the commander of the other army. Called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and ran. He took tail and ran, headed the other way, and fled on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The Lord routed them. It's a pretty straightforward account, honestly. No nonsense. Here's what happened. Israel comes down the mountain and wipes them out. There's a battle. Israel wins. The Lord is the one who does it. Not Barak and his army. The Lord. We'll learn in the next chapter that a massive rainstorm and a flash flood had caused the primary military advantage of Jabin's army, of Sisera's army, to, uh, to basically get stuck in the mud and be wiped out. It was the dry season, shouldn't have happened, it should have been dry as could be, but they get a rainy, uh, a, a big thunderstorm out of nowhere, water rushes down the river valley that should have been a dry riverbed, and all these 900 chariots of iron become not their biggest strategic advantage, but completely obsolete, if not entirely their disadvantage. God quite clearly won the battle. All Barak needed to do was act. He just needed to step up and engage. God was always going to take care of the rest. Always. Deborah knew that. She simply needed to convince and assure Barak of that. Now Barak was ready to act, and he did. He led the army. And then Sisera tries to escape, and Barak follows hot in pursuit. 
Now, if you, keep, if you keep reading here, Sisera runs to a camp that was set up not too far from the, from the battlefield. The camp is an, is an ally to King Jabin. Uh, we're not really sure why this camp is set up where it is. It actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense for it to be there. But the camp is there. This ally is there. Sisera sees it says, I'll go hide in that camp. They won't be able to find me there. I'll be amidst the tents and the people there. I'm going to hide. He runs in and he hides uh, in this tent. He hides and he lays down, scared, hungry, and thirsty, which is where we meet the third player in our story, J.L. J.L., one of the wives in this camp, probably the, the leader of the community, uh, probably his wife, offers Sisera a tent, some nice warm goat's milk and a place to hide. Sisera says, thank you so much. That is so kind of you. I'm so glad that you did this for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tuck away back here in the back of the tent. I'll drink this warm goat's milk that will help me to rest and to uh, gather my strength after this battle. All my men are gone. He's in you know, like shock. He's, he's freaking out. And she says, they're there. It'll be okay. Lie down and take a nap. All will be well. And Sisera says, thank you. Will you just guard the door? And if anybody comes by the door of the tent, will you just say, Go on, there's nobody here. And they'll listen to you because you're a woman and you're not part of the army. You're not trying to hide anything. Jael says, sure, I can do that. This is where things go real dark real quick. Verse 20. He said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone there? Say, no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And then the most irrelevant sentence in the Bible, so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Told you it gets dark. These women don't play around in this chapter. And you can see why this chapter is one of the favorites for those that would, would, would want to champion the feminine cause. Some intense action from the ladies. And as Deborah prophesied, it is to a woman that Sisera ultimately is doomed to die. But it's not Deborah, to our surprise. It's essentially a housewife with a tent peg, a common household item. It's the equivalent of a housewife in the tent with a frying pan. That's basically what we see here. So what is going on here? What, what in the world do we learn from this very violent, very dark, somewhat unexpected text? What do we make of Deborah, of Barak, of J.L.? I love that we have chapter 5 that kind of fills in some of the gaps for us. So chapter 4 is kind of the just the facts, here's the story, here's how they acted, here's what they did. But then whenever you get to chapter 5, you have this, this song that comes out. Let's just read a couple of the first couple of verses. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So chapter 5 is the song break in the musical, right? This is the part where they start singing and celebrating all that has just happened that you have seen. And it explains this wonderful, this wonderful way in which things have happened. And it's a duet 
sung by our two main characters, Barak and Deborah. A duet where the two main characters, a man and a woman, go out of their way to celebrate chiefly what God has done, but also how he has used both men and women to do it. So let me tell you what I see whenever I look at these chapters. And I'll just tell you right now, this is because of the way that this works and we can all look at it and we can see different things. There are some things that people read in the Bible and I have to say that is flat out wrong. It may be that one of these other ways to read this text is the better way to read it. It, That's totally possible. And I don't knock other people that draw those conclusions from it. But I just want to tell you what I see whenever I read these two chapters uh, as it, and, and, and specifically for this point here, as it pertains to men and women. I see a woman that is strong, courageous, full of faith, and full of the word of God. I see a woman that leads, that refuses to back down, that is called upon by God in a nation's deep hour of need to be the one that steps in and fills the gap. When the nation is falling away, it is a woman that steps in the gap and says, no more. We're not going to go this way anymore. And in this text, there is no irony in that. There's no irony given that this is somehow a less than ideal situation. There's no irony given in this in that that this is not how it should have been. But instead, this is exactly how God ordained it to be and called a woman to this place. There's no shame in it. It is embraced by Barak. We assume it is embraced by Deborah's husband, Lapidoth, who only gets one mention, but it nowhere says that he was somehow opposed to his wife leading in the way that she is. And it's embraced by the other princes of Israel. We see that here in the opening verses of this song. It says there that the leaders took the lead in Israel. If you have the NIV, if you guys are reading from the NIV, I think it says something about something to the effect of that, that, God, uh, um, that God celebrates when the princes lead. Something, something to that effect is, is what it says. This whole thing that happens here, the, the, the dichotomy of the men and the women and the woman in the lead here, most importantly, it is ordained and it is embraced and it is set forth by God himself. For far too long, the church has played games with the roles that women can play and can't play within the church. I do not believe that men and women are interchangeable. I do not believe that you can simply plug in a woman or plug in a man. A man is a man and a woman is a woman, which is somehow controversial to say. But a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And we are not the same. We are not. And because I believe that, I believe that the church has suffered greatly by shutting up the voices of women in our midst. We should not run from the teaching of women, but we, like Barak, should seek it out and we should listen to it. Think of the suffering and pain and sorrow that would have been Israel's if Barak had not said, if Barak had gone to Deborah whenever Deborah calls him out and Barak had said, who are you to talk to me? You're nothing but a woman. You're not in charge here. Bring me a man to call me out. I'm the leader of the armies and you're nothing but a woman. Think of all the suffering that would have continued because of Barak's arrogance if that had been his response. If he had come to her and he had said, you're too emotional to lead. You can't call me out. You're too gullible to speak on behalf of God. All of these are arguments that have been used on why men should not listen to women teaching the Bible. 
Think about what would happen if, they had, if he had come and said, you can't do these things because you're not equipped, you're too emotional, you're too gullible. You can't be trusted because you're a woman. All that suffering would have continued for the nation of Israel. This is exactly what the church does today to women. We should crave the voice of a woman as much as we do a man, so long as they are both speaking the word of God. And for us, that means teaching the scripture. And again, it's, be- it's because I don't believe that men and women are interchangeable, that we are in fact different, that pushes me to want to hear more from women and how they understand and apply the word of God. No doubt different than hearing and applying from a man. I'm going to let this rest here for now, okay? I've said a lot, a mouthful here. I'm going to let this rest here in this place. But I just as a, as a teaser for coming attractions in the fall, we're going to hash this out in the fall. We're going to talk about all of this in greater detail in the fall. But right now, when we talk about Deborah, I think we need to recognize that Deborah played a role that God called her to and that Barak celebrated that role. He did not lament it. Men, we would do well to do the same. And as much as this story celebrates women, and I think it undoubtedly does, the women are at no point trying to usurp or take over leadership from the men. The first line of the song, this is verse 2 in chapter 5, sung by Deborah, is the celebration of the men that led their men into battle. It says, the leaders took the lead. Like I said, the NIV says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, praise the Lord. Deborah is referring to the leaders of various tribes of Israel, to the various different people in Israel, these various tribes, and the men that come forward. If you read the Hebrew, it's kind of weird. It's it's obviously some type of an idiom, but it basically says, when the hairy ones take the lead. When the men take the lead and they come forward, she celebrates. She says, praise the Lord. Later in verse 9, she will say that her heart is with or goes out to the leaders, the princes, when they go into battle. Deborah is not doing some sort of a I am woman, hear me roar song in the musical here. This is not the purpose of her song. Later, she'll rejoice in how God has made her a mother of Israel. But for this moment in or how God has made her a, a mother of Israel for this moment in Israel's unfaithfulness. But throughout her song, Deborah is praising the warriors and their men who lead. This text never pits men against women and women against men as though success and flourishing of one must come at the expense of the other. That's nonsense. Church, we've got to stop that. We've got to stop talking like like if women lead, then that means that men suffer, or that if men lead, women suffer. That is not the the case at at all. What what seems to be clear is that when no one leads, we suffer. That's actually what is being taught here. This song is a duet. It is a man and a woman singing together about how God has given the battle into their collective hands. It celebrates Barak's battle, Jael's killing of Sisera, and Deborah's rising up. The text in chapter 4 celebrates, it, it celebrates everything that we read in chapter 4. It celebrates all of it, the men and the women. Deborah celebrates the leaders, the princes that man 
and the men that show up to lead in battle. It's men celebrating and listening to the leadership of women, and it's women leading and celebrating the men that lead. Over, back and forth, back and forth. The men celebrating the women, the women celebrating the men. It goes back and forth doing that the whole time. Friends, this is what the church should look like. This is what it should be. We should be tripping over each other to show honor and support. Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We must do better in showing honor to each other, especially across genders. Instead of trying to say, no, this is mine, you can't have it. And no, this is mine, I'm going to take it. Friends, we must do better. And frankly, men, we must do better. Now, after saying all of that, this story is not really about any of that, at least not primarily. What the text is about, what the song is about, is about worshiping a God that never left them in their sin, that never left them in their suffering, that never left them in the battle, and a God that deserves to be praised, and so they will do it. In verse 24, they sing of the blessed woman, Jael, the most blessed of, twint, of tent-dwelling women. I mean, she's a housewife. The blessed Jael with her tent peg. She's, whoever's singing that line, Deborah or Barak, we don't know who it is, they're drawing out the irony, the unexpected reality that the commander of this feared army, Sisera, the commander of this army that is known for taking his spoils of war, one of which is women as slaves. It, say, it says there at the end of the song that, 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 that Sisera's mom would be looking forward for Sisera coming home, but since he's so late in coming home, the spoils of war must have been good. He probably got a womb or two. That's what it says. So this, this man... This violent man who had raped and pillaged women in the, in the, as the spoils of war is taken out by a lowly housewife with a tent peg. I'm telling you, one of the constant themes of Scripture is that God loves to do the necessary thing through unexpected people at unexpected times in, unex, in unexpected ways. This is how God works, and they celebrate him for it. So through Deborah and Jael, God chose to deliver Israel. Through Barak, who had been passive, God decides to work. As we saw last week, through the left-handed Ehud, God chooses to deliver Israel. And it is through a Nazarite baby that God chooses to deliver the world. The world sees a useless Nazarite. God sees his son always the unexpected. In John chapter 1, you have uh, a person who would, who would become one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel. He's talking to Philip, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's no way this guy Jesus is anything great. Why would we follow him? This guy's from this little podunk town in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. No, nobody's good going to come out of Nazareth. There's no Messiah going to come out of Nazareth. Have you ever been to Nazareth? That place is terrible. Philip said to him, just come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So my question for you this morning is, will your confession be like that of Nathanael at the beginning of this little piece that I just read here? Dismissive of such an unlikely Savior? Or like him at the end, who recognizes Jesus as King? This is the story of the judges. This is the primary story of Deborah and Barak. It's that God chooses to work in ways that you would not expect to do things that absolutely must be done. And that's the story of Jesus. He sends his son to endure suffering on our behalf. That we may be able to sing a song of praise just like Deborah and Barak. That God has worked in ways we never would have imagined. That we wouldn't have written the story ourselves. We would have celebrated the king that comes. This will be the end of the story of Judges. They cry out for a king. They want a king. That's the story we would have written if we were writing the New Testament. Give us a king with power. That's our Messiah. And instead you get this nobody from Nazareth. Who dies on our behalf. That's the story of Deborah and Barak. It's the story of Jesus, and it's the story of Christianity and us. Embracing a nobody who is everything. Because he's the only way and the only hope we have to be delivered. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we read this text that is a difficult text, that is a dark text... As we read this story and we try to make sense out of it, I pray that you would give all of us humility. Help us to learn and to draw from this what you would have for us. And as much as we want to get into the, the, the this and that, and the back and forth over men and women, and Father, help us to be faithful in what it is that I, that I have taught and what we learn as we look at this text. Father, help us not to miss the main point. And that's that you go before us that you show us grace and mercy when we do not deserve it. And that you do it in ways we never would have chosen and never would have expected. All through your son. Born a baby. Died a, a, a poor man with no place to lay his head. Didn't even have money for a tomb. But we know that's okay. Because he only needed it for three days. Father, help us to praise and to celebrate a risen Savior this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.